Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Hope for Healthcare with Dr. Katie Cole in partnership with ICD Healthcare Network. Dr. Katie Cole is a holistic physician, organizational well-being consultant, and change agent, working with industry leaders and proven strategies to heal our national healthcare system and our culture of medicine. Stay tuned to hear today's speaker. Welcome everyone to Hope for Healthcare podcast. This is a podcast in which we interview expert leaders around the country on evidence-based solutions for healing our national healthcare system and our culture of medicine. I want to extend a very warm welcome today to Dr. Richard Carmona. He is currently the Chief of Health Innovation for Canyon Ranch. He was born to a poor Hispanic family in New York City and experienced homelessness, hunger, and health disparities during his youth. The experiences sensitized him to the relationships among culture, health, education, economic status, shaping his aspirations. Dr. Carmona then enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1967, where he became a combat-decorated Special Forces Vietnam veteran and then pursued a career in medicine, specializing in general, vascular, and trauma surgery. He also has served over 34 years with the Sheriff's Department in Tucson and is one of the most highly decorated police officers in Arizona. In 2002, Dr. Carmona was unanimously confirmed as the 17th Surgeon General of the United States. He focused on prevention, preparedness, health disparities, health literacy, and global health to include health diplomacy. In 2006, he successfully completed his four-year term as U.S. Surgeon General and was then named to the position of Vice Chairman for Canyon Ranch. He is a renowned integrative medicine physician, trauma surgeon, and global public health leader with military service and law enforcement experience. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Carmona, or Rich, and thank you so much for being here today. We're so excited to talk with you. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I'm happy to connect with your followers. Well, can you tell us just a little bit, you know, you have such an extensive and vast background, you know, starting from your military experience, even, become, you know, working for the sheriff's department and um, integrative medicine. And can you tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming the 17th Surgeon General of the United States? I will. It, uh, uh, it's a long journey. And, and one that uh, to somebody who doesn't know me would think, well, it appears this guy just couldn't keep a job, that he had so many jobs. But, um, you know, I started out uh, from immigrant parents uh, as a high school dropout growing up in Harlem in New York City and at times uh, being homeless. Uh, and at 17 years old, I really didn't have much to show for my previous 17 years. I was the oldest of four children and uh, had a mom who was uh, strong as could be, uh, worked nights and took care of us in a day, a father that, uh, a nice man, but he often wasn't there. And um, I went in the army, at, enlisted at 17. And that kind of changed my life. Uh, I got an equivalency diploma, a GED, and then my military career began and kind of uh, gave me skills that I use today, uh, understanding how to complete a mission, uh, what are the deliverables, timelines, um, uh, all of the um, things that you teach in leadership courses today, I started learning it. And it actually probably started early on when my mother told me, you're a leader when I'm not here, you have to take care of your two brothers and sisters oh, as, as, as a young boy. 
And so, um, you know, I just built on that throughout throughout my life and ultimately um, did many of the things you mentioned. You know, I still uh, am a, a distinguished professor, uh, well, this now a distinguished laureate professor at the University of Arizona and also at the Uniformed Services University, which is the military university in, at Ohio State. So I still teach and I enjoy that very much. Uh, I don't do any surgery anymore. I've kind of morphed into policy and prevention, uh, integrative health, things like that. And uh, the having been a provider on the front lines for so many years has also given me great insight into what needs to be done to hopefully uh, fix our systems and make them more user friendly and cost effective and so on. Uh, ultimately, as you know, we are um, spending about 19% of our gross domestic product on what we call healthcare. It really isn't healthcare, it's sick care. 75 to 80 cents of every dollar we spend is on diseases that we cause by uh, aberrant lifestyle choices. Sometimes um, because we have no choice, we can't get good food, we live in a neighborhood that it's unsafe to recreate, or uh, even when we look at people who have all of the amenities of a nice life, but they make bad choices and they still get diabetes and hypertension and hyperlipidemia and so on. And of course, we should not forget the burden of mental health, which is often still stigmatized in our country across all demographics, especially uh, in, in one of my cohorts in the military, where we still have up to 20 suicides a day from our veterans. So all of those things weigh heavily on me. And yeah. um, I'm fortunate to have had an opportunity to function in many different domains and to continue to do those things, including serving on public boards and working with venture capital and private equity, being able to identify emerging science and technology to accelerate it, to benefit mankind. So it's kind of been fun for me. I, you know, it's a long journey, but uh, I still enjoy everything. Well, it sounds like you do. And, and thank you for your service to our country. And thank you for continuing to be involved in policy and advocacy. It's, it's so important and needed right now more than ever. Yeah. Um, Dr. A rich, I mean, I keep calling you Dr. Carmona, but it's rich today. Yeah, please. Um, yeah, so I, I'm curious. I, I know our audience probably would like to hear a little bit more about your tenure as Surgeon General and any of the projects that you were really passionate about when you were in office. Well, the, the job, there's, there's no real training for Surgeon General. Fortunately, I'd been in the service, military service, and uh, the president asked me to consider coming back and what first thing is the public doesn't understand that the president only gets to nominate you. You must then go through a Senate confirmation hearing. So a lot of times I'll see the stories about me saying the president appointed Rich to do this. Not really. He nominated me and then you go to Senate confirmation. But it's a long process. It takes months. Hundreds of people get, uh, um, you know, uh, get into the hopper, if you will, to be considered. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it's a triage process. You keep interviewing, you keep interviewing, and ultimately, they offer you the job a month later. Then you prepare to go to Senate confirmation, which is uh, a unique uh, challenge uh, because often um, there is a necessity to ask tough questions, which is what they should, but it also becomes partisan as well, mm -hmm. uh, the questions, because each of those senators uh, sometimes has uh, agendas that they want to put out in a public sphere, and they will do it sometimes through a nominee. But ultimately, uh, you get through that. I had some very nice senators who um, guided me through this because there's no training course for this. Mm -hmm. You don't learn about it in graduate school or, you know, in, in medical school. 
And uh, I became the, they tell me, the first Surgeon General to be confirmed unanimously by the Senate. Mm -hmm. And then you get the job. And now, what is your job? To protect, promote, and advance the health, safety, and security of the United States, which on paper sounds simple, deceivingly simple. But mm -hmm. when you try and execute on that, extraordinarily difficult in a hyper-partisan, toxic political environment, which has increased over the last few years. Mm -hmm. But again, your job uh, is to always keep in mind that you have the privilege to serve as a leader of the nation in the area of health and science. Uh, and your answers should never be political. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to tell inconvenient truths to those who have been elected or appointed. But that's what you have to do because that is your job. And in fact, the government should demand that the Surgeon General stay apolitical, just like the Army and Navy, Air Force generals and, and admirals and so on, um, state the truth that you feel is based on your experience that will add value to the United States. And, and that again is a simple statement, but often in the combat zone of Washington DC can become very difficult. Mm. It sounds like it. And was there one particular project or a statement that you created with your team that, that you're really passionate about that you want to share with yeah. us? Yeah, well, you know, the agenda I would say that I, I would focus on was prevention for reasons that I mentioned when we opened that so much of the disease and economic burden we have as a nation and the world is preventable for different reasons. I mean, if you look at the, the globalness of, of our nation and, and our footprint, which is relatively small with 330 million people in a world of almost 8 billion, but yet we have a disproportionate say in that world who look to us often for leadership. Yeah. So if you're in an inner city, like in Harlem where I grew up and you're poor and you don't have access to food and you're not sure about the stability of life on a daily basis, or you live in a, in a wealthy community, for instance, we, we still have the same problems, but the ideology is different. And then you look at Sub-Saharan Africa with HIV, uh, with children that have no parents because of uh, their parents dying from HIV. So, you know, it's, it's a complex environment, but prevention, putting focus is important, not only for the United States, but for the world. And then um, preparedness was another one uh, as it relates to uh, preparedness, what we call all hazards. Mm -hmm. That could be everything from a pandemic like we're experiencing today, Katrina that we experienced back then, tsunamis in Indonesia, and so on. The organizational structure for that is in place but often as a nation, we forget and uh, we repeat the mistakes of the past. So prevention, preparedness, health, dis health dis diplomacy, which is taking science and technology and leveraging it, not only for the direct benefit of health, but using it as a way to achieve peace and prosperity, especially in other lands who are struggling. And often it, it, it's, a, it's a tool, I will even say a weapon that can disarm your adversaries and prevent um, wars, Mm -hmm. and discontent by having the rest of the world truly see who we are in a humanitarian way. Mm. So that, I think those are the ones I spent most of my time, but on a daily basis, you're diverted to the emergencies of the day based on Congress, based on the president's mm. needs. Of course. <laughs> well, I know we've talked a lot about your vast experience in healthcare industry and integrative medicine and and in, the, in all of your different leadership roles, with all of that wisdom and knowledge combined, do you have any advice or guidance for us on 
some key ways that we can try to really heal our healthcare system? Well, I, I'm sure I'd, I'd be happy to uh, comment on that. Um, you know, each physician I've had uh, through life, I've learned quite a bit as it relates to the, the importance of leadership and still teach leadership to this day within the military, within business communities when I'm asked to do so. So leadership is, is the crux of it. But, you know, having been, for instance, a, a CEO of a county healthcare system in a, poor, in, a, in a poor area in Southern Arizona that was the closest tertiary care center to the border. So immigration was involved, drugs, drug trafficking, all of these things that you would see, uncompensated care. So when I put that all together, it has given me a unique perspective. And so first and foremost, um, I would say leadership is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Because if you don't understand leadership, no matter how smart you are, you're not going to be successful in solving the problem. So as, where did I learn leadership? Started as a child, really reinforced in the military, where leadership can define living or dying in combat, mm -hmm. making decisions in business as well. So when you look at all of that's been written on leadership and the courses that are out there, to me, leadership distills down into one simple sentence. If you're a leader, you're responsible for the destiny of others. That's mm -hmm. it. Whether you're a young sergeant in the military unit in combat with in charge of a few people or a lot of people, or whether you're the CEO of a big corporation, or whether you're the president of the United States, the only difference is the scope and scale of your leadership. But first and foremost, as a leader, you must understand that it's always selfless, that it's never about you. It's about those people that you have the privilege to serve. Leadership must be selfless. And that means that you will subordinate your own interests for the greater good of the organization that's giving you the privilege to lead. Mm -hmm. Leadership involves mentorship. The first day on the job, you have to ask who is in the bench behind me, should the bus hit me to be able to have continuity of operations or continuity of government when I was Surgeon General, for instance. Okay, so leaders, leaders are mentors. You, you by example and by education and by inspiration, are bringing up those next generations behind you that will also have fiduciary responsibility for the, that organization. Mm -hmm. Leaders kind of come into a lot, a lot has been written about the types of leadership. To me, it's pretty simple in this regard. Two types of leaders, ones that inspire you and ones that try and get to their end by intimidating you. Mm -hmm. The intimidators never last. They fall off by the wayside. The people that inspire you, you learn that in the military that the young soldiers and sailors and airmen will follow you into battle. If they believe in you, if you've been honest, if you have integrity, another value of a leader. Integrity has very complex you know, definitions. Yeah. The simple definition is doing the right thing when no one is watching you. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that has to be one of the values because the, the, the people you have the, the ability to lead and privilege to lead will act more on the values that you promulgate rather than what you say. So if you lead with integrity, if you lead with dignity, if you uh, dignity, if you are a mentor, if they see you care, they'll follow you into battle. Whether it is the business battles, the metaphorical business battles or real battle in the military. So the mentorship, as I said, is very important. And the other thing as a leader, you are the steward of the brand that um, you have been entrusted with. 
whether you, it's in the military, as a special forces soldier, where the bar is set very high, whether it is um, in any of the academic positions I've had as a professor, because whatever you get involved in, there's something that usually comes before or after your name. You know, Surgeon General Richard Carmona re representing the United States of America, for instance, a professor at a university or a police officer or a soldier. But if you tarnish the brand, you hurt the whole organization. Mm -hmm. So your actions are very important because you must always be building your brand because that's where the public gets, gives you the trust to be able to do the job, which brings the value back to the public. So those are, you know, the, the five minute primer on how I see leadership and, and yet it can be much more expanded, but I, I would say those are the basic values. And of course, communication, understanding how to relate and engage diverse audiences all over the world. So Surgeon General, you, you, you may go speak to the American Medical Association, but the next day you may be at the UN or you may be speaking to the Pan American Health Organization or any place else in the world, understanding the culture, understanding that we are a small footprint in the world of 330 million, as I said, versus 8 billion in a couple of hundred countries around the world with different cultures. So understanding that, that culture, language, and how you engage different populations are, are equally important when you represent the United States of America. Well, thank you. Thank you for really deep diving into what you believe are essential characteristics of a good leader and a solid leader. And we talk a lot about that in the burnout community in healthcare, about how necessary and important it is to have leadership training and ongoing leadership personal and professional development for healthcare employees and the executive leaders. It's extraordinarily important. And I think, you know, the military handles it probably better than anybody, because as you get promoted, you, you have to go through additional leadership training that makes sure you understand, understand the scope and scale of the responsibility that you're about to take on. And when you get to a senior officer position, uh, Navy would be like a, a commander or captain and the army would be a colonel, for instance, uh, just as an example. Before you make the jump to become an admiral or general, often they send you to graduate school for a year or two on leadership, okay? Maybe on national security. It could be a whole host of issues, but embedded in that and, and that master's degree that you may get or advanced certification you get is a lot of leadership as to how does this job fit in to not only the national order of dealing with Congress, uh, representing your service, but what about the rest of the world? What do you need to know about the rest of the world? What do you need to know about national security? Mm -hmm. So I find in the civilian world, often uh, you have people that get promoted and sometimes it's not the right fit because they haven't had the training. You think about uh, it with, and with very due respect to my colleagues, whether you're I'm having been a registered nurse, a paramedic and a doc myself, I received very little leadership training in any position, even though I became a, a chief of you know, different services, a chief of trauma, a full professor. So that's academic, but with the academic competencies, you should never assume that those persons are leaders as well. It's a distinct different uh, group of competencies that some people pick up along the way. Some people get the training, but like I say, in the military, they ensure you get the training before you move up mm -hmm. outside. 
sometimes there's mismatches because people aren't used to being a leader and they aren't used to the scope and scale that they may inherit at some point. Often, sometimes I should say, given because of the academic prowess, but if you did a competency look at uh, 360 on leadership, you'd find really, really don't have that much experience. So the private sector, when they look for a CEO, they do deep dives on you. They, they look at all of these things. In academics, sometimes it isn't really looked at. And a lot of times it's more subjective. You've seen this person, they look good, let's give it a try. So, but having been lived in both worlds, I see the strength in both. So this is not being you know critical of either, they're just different pathways to get to those leadership positions. Well, yeah. And, you know, I think what makes it healthcare so unique is that, especially as physicians and physician leaders, when we get promoted to a leadership position, a lot of times we don't have the training that comes along with the promotion. So we have to seek out training outside of our healthcare organization. They don't necessarily have leadership training built into the, to the hospital or system. Right. So I, I really appreciate you going into detail about the importance of, as a leader, really living your values and integrity being really at the top of the list for that. I appreciate you going into that. Well, yeah. I, it's, um, it's just who I am and the hard knocks lessons over many, many years that have brought me to these opinions. Mm -hmm. Certainly there may be opinions to the contrary, but I think unless you have those values, uh, and you have them externally facing that those young people behind you, that succession plan that's being made, see that the best leaders, the people that they are leading, want to emulate those behaviors that they have, mm -hmm. the selflessness, the integrity, the dignity, the mentorship, the stewardship, all of those things. And, you and none of them can be taken for granted. As I said, and uh, the way we talk about it in the military is... Uh, you know you're gonna, you know you're a good leader when your troops will line up behind you and follow you any place you go because they trust you. And that trust is also another very important attribute um, because that now with our culture of healthcare, we're really having to rebuild trust, especially on the front lines. Yes, absolutely. And again, it comes back to leadership because I want to stay on focused on your topic. It's this is about leadership and a lack of informed, selfless leadership, where the leader understands their goal is, I got to bring people together. Because mm. if we cannot stand together, we will fall apart. Well, and you know, there's one other subject that kind of goes along that I wanted to touch on that we have talked about previously. And as a psychiatrist, I'm very passionate about this is really creating more access to mental health care for the entire healthcare workforce, employees, leaders, physicians, frontline uh, workers. And I'm curious to see if you have any um, advice on how we can start really breaking down the barriers to mental health treatment and the stigma yeah. around well, it. This, this, the answer to that, of course, could be a PhD thesis or lots of podcasts, but I'm happy to touch on it, at least an overview. Having, had, having dealt with this in uh, as Surgeon General as well, we've identified that we're spending about one in five dollars on what we call healthcare. Mm -hmm. Most of us in the business realize it really isn't healthcare, it's sick care. You know, maybe 75, 80% of that is spent on diseases we cause. Mm -hmm. But then you step back to the uninformed, they say, well, why don't you just fix that? 
Well, if it was that easy, I would. But the problem is, as we discussed early on, it's multifactorial and you have to look across demographics, across cultures and so on, okay? So is Medicare working the way we want it to work? Is, the, is, is our, uh, all, of our, all of our systems that we've put in place at federal and state government, are they working? Or are they empowering people not to work harder or get a job and so on? You know, when we look at the great society debates back in the 50s and 60s, and we see that um, uh, good, good caring people put together programs to ensure that the underclass would at least have basic uh, housing, have basic uh, food and be able to uh, raise their children. But unknowingly, the unintended consequences of that, it, so the sociologists will tell you today that it's kind of worked to sometimes hold people down. Mm -hmm. And so really, you know, you go, it goes back to that old metaphor. I can keep giving you fish or I can teach you how to fish, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and, and once you know how to fish, you'll do fine. And so we're struggling through that now as a society. So how do we, how do we deal with this? Well, right now we are struggling with issues of health inequities. How do we achieve health equity? Social justice, a lot of these things are whirling around together. Uh, most are usually uh, these health disparities that are more exhibited in communities of color or people that are poor. Okay, so there's no one solution, but understanding the complexity of all of the dependent variables that are out there leads us to have discussions with um, a variety of thought leaders from sociologists, anthropologists, physicians, nurses, psychiatrists. Mental health has to be in there because of the mental health burden we have, which we still are not as good as we should be as a nation in preventing the stigmatization of this and therefore the lack of access. So anybody who tells you they have the solution and it's this program or that, it's not going to work. We have to understand the complexity of the diverse society that we have created. Mm. The diverse society that, in fact, in itself challenges us because at times with discrimination and such, it makes it more difficult. Yet the paradox is the reason we are so great is that we are so diverse. Yet, paradoxically, it divides us every day in different ways. So having, you know, having to have the discussions on those uncomfortable truths mm. by both sides of the aisle to come together to say, well, how do we address these? How do we empower people? How do we engage them so they take charge of their own life? Mm -hmm. but how do I make sure that they have the resources, the food, the medical care, the preventive care mm -hmm. to be able to address those issues? So, and if you look at you know the last 50 years, each party comes in and they say they're going to fix the system. And I think they try, but it is much more complex than just a new program that provides a voucher to somebody or changes the way we build. And yeah. so understanding culture, and that's why I say sociology, anthropology, uh, business, it's going to take a true village mm -hmm. of non-biased, apolitical, smart people to start us on this journey where we can optimize health and wellness and create a society where people live younger, longer, happier, healthier, and cheaper. That's the end goal. Absolutely. That's the end goal. Wow. Thank you, Rich. That, that was very insightful. And I really appreciate you 
touching on the diversity and complexity of our culture and the need for understanding all of the diversity in our population and in the needs. It's, that's very true. You're right. It's not, you know, there's not going to be just one solution, right? It's going to take all of us coming together. You know, I, when I was surgeon general, I often would um, get frustrated and I would tell my senior staff, you know, the one degree that I need that I don't have that would make me a better surgeon general and leader is that of an anthropologist, because mm-hmm. ultimately I understand the science, but the importance of connecting, engaging, inspiring diverse cultures is important. How do you take complex science that just a few years ago was science fiction, translate it in a culturally competent, health literate manner, deliver it to a fellow citizen we call a patient in order to do one thing only, engender sustainable behavioral change. That's it. Walk a little more, eat a little less, never smoke. Simple things. If you did those things, today we would call those epigenetic inputs, okay? That optimized gene expression, okay? Yeah. When we get down to molecular science, okay? But that's all it is. If we could perfect that, we would eliminate many of the problems in society, mm-hmm. okay? And of course, that's a lofty aspirational goal. But if we had to state a mission, that would be the mission that I would say. We want a society that can live younger, can live longer, can live happier, can live healthier and cheaper. Well, yes. And it really, I like what you say, it really comes down to focusing more on the preventive aspect of disease development and chronic disease that we create in, in our own health based on our lifestyle choices and things. And I, you know, I have integrative medicine background training as well. And so I'm very passionate about advocating for that with my own patients. And I believe that when we are, when we have optimized health and well-being and we're vibrant and thriving, uh, we automatically make healthier choices. We're more positive. We tend to have a a broader perspective on things and in fact to be better leaders when we're healthy Absolutely. Yeah. you know uh, and, and with that in place we see that truly the cost of care drops the economy benefits there's more innovation there's more market disruption we are able to do a lot more things that we can't do now because we're so distracted by all of the problems mm-hmm. so there's a, it's a win-win across the board but getting there truly is a uh i would say a um transformative cultural market disruption because we have to think differently. We have to think differently. We have to approach it differently. Mm-hmm. And uh, as Einstein alluded to, uh, we should not expect different outcomes if we keep doing the same thing. And right now we continue to do, I mean, there's a little change around the edges. And I would say many of my colleagues running hospitals and health systems are doing the best they can to integrate to the, but the system isn't designed to do that. It often becomes something that's tangential to the revenue stream that you're being accounted, held accountable for. It's a business now. It's a commodity. Much of what we do is traded on Wall Street. It's not necessarily bad, but that's the truth. So how do we do that? How does a physician like yourself who wants to um, practice integrative preventive medicine, how do, you, how do you get revenue for that? How do you generate revenue that you can make a living and keep people healthy. It's very difficult. Yet, as a trauma surgeon, I made a lot of money because I my job was to put people back together again after they made bad behavioral choices, okay, mm-hmm. or had an accident that wasn't their fault. 
So the system isn't there yet. The infrastructure isn't there yet. And some of the headwinds that we face are the revenue streams are so well ingrained and support so many people, you just can't pull the plug. But Mm -hmm. how do do we make that transition that we start more and more being able to reward physicians like you who are willing to go into these areas that are tough? Uh, You know, how about mental health? Okay, big one where you are as a psychiatrist, just prevention, uh, food, nutrition, um, things like mindfulness and meditation, which traditional Western medicine used to kind of poo poo. But now we realize there actually is a very strong scientific basis when you look at neuroplasticity, brain health, and so on, preventing cognitive decline. There it is. You know, so I, I think we're seeing much more of what used to be called complementary alternative mm-hmm. becoming mainstream. And it should when we can validate that it works and helps our, our National Center for uh, for this in uh, at the NIH is looking at this the last number of years to be able to say, and when I was Surgeon General that was established and, and the idea was, well, let's look at all of these practices. Let's not just dismiss them. I mean, after all, if uh, how is it that a Buddhist monk can put themselves in hibernation and control, you know, uh, not only uh, the usual systems, but autonomically control systems like your heart rate, okay? Mm-hmm. And where do they get that power from? And, you know, so there's so many aspects that we have not embraced. Uh, and I, you know, I, I sometimes with tongue in cheek talk about the arrogance of Western medicine that we were for many years ready to dismiss practices, Ayurvedic medicine, integrative medicine, all these, you know, things like that. And yet not all of them work, but why don't we take a look at the ones that work and incorporate them, especially since we have diverse populations that we are leading who believe in many of those things. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's all of that. You know, I learned a lot with the, one of the responsibilities I had was overseeing the Indian Health Service, which is like a third world country within our country. But dealing with healers, shamans, village chiefs, uh, tribal chiefs, who all see the world very differently, mm-hmm. you know, and they're not wrong, they just have a different culture. But being able to engage and share information, I look at their best practices, they look at mine, and help each other. So those are some of the things that uh, I, I try to uh, approach fairly and always never being afraid of admitting my ignorance to the complexity of the world that I have the privilege to lead part of it when I don't understand something and engaging the people around me who do have that expertise and listening and crowdsourcing information to make the best uh, decisions that benefit the people I have the privilege to lead. Well, you bring up an excellent point, and I think that's another essential characteristic of a solid leader is one that can admit when he or she may not have the answer and is open to feedback and really listening to um, their employees or their team. Yeah, um, I think it's a, it's a good leaders um, when they're up at the podium accepting some award for some magnanimous thing that they did often, often will talk about how humble they are and with sincerity, they will also talk about really my reward is having the privilege to lead this team. It's they who did the work. It's they who accomplished this, okay? You always shine that light back on the team because you have the privilege, you know, in name to represent all of them, but it's about that team. You didn't do that yourself. 
You may have come up with the idea. You may have been the resource officer. But ultimately, there's a lot of people working night and days that accomplished a mission, whatever that was, that mission or value proposition that you've defined. And so, uh, you know, the people who are out there grandstanding and taking credit for everything are probably not the real leaders mm -hmm. that they think they are. Mm -hmm. It's never about you as a leader. It's always about those you have the privilege to lead. Yes, I could not agree more, Rich. Um, well, I, you know, we've really unpacked a lot today. We we really had a great discussion on leadership development and what you consider to be key characteristics of a, a really inspirational leader. And we've talked about the politics and what it's going to take to really heal our healthcare system. I'm curious if there's anything else that you wanted to leave a message that you wanted to leave with our audience today that we didn't get to. Well, uh, first of all, for those who do listen to you, to thank, thank them for listening and for having an open heart and an open mind to look for different ideas as to how we move forward. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, um, a psychiatrist uh, in integrative medicine who is hosting a podcast uh, with um, the ability to forensically dissect complex issues and get into people's minds mm -hmm. is probably what we need a lot more of today, mm -hmm. you know, in an unbiased way to, so, you know, in a very short time, we've kind of unpackaged a whole lot of stuff in itself that yeah. could go on for hours and hours. Absolutely. At least conceptually, we've defined some of the challenges there and some will disagree. But, mm -hmm. you know, in my heart, I think that these are some of the more important issues that we have to address as we move forward and need to be addressed in a nonpartisan, scientifically driven way, always keeping in mind what will benefit the American public and the world mm -hmm. as, a, as a Surgeon General to protect, promote, and advance the health, safety, and security of the nation. That's, that's the mission. And that should not be political. Both parties should be coming together as it relates to that. Perfect message. That's a great way to end today, Rich. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for the, uh, for the opportunity. I, I, again, I would only ask you if, um, uh, if you get, I don't know if you get feedback on these, but I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to know how many people things resonated with and how many people did I piss off to be honest with you. Just like <laughs> to give an idea, you know, you know, am, am I, am I uh, hitting the right points on yes. some of these things? Well, and those, for those of you listening, we'll be posting on LinkedIn and social media and feel free to comment and we'll uh, maybe poke a discussion about that in the yeah. comments. Well, I'd like to hear, I've, I, I generally don't do any of that for, for obvious reasons for my position in the past, just to stay away from that. Uh, but I, I would certainly enjoy hearing any ideas or thoughts that you have so I can become a better leader. It's, it's a, leadership's a journey. It doesn't stop. You learn every day, you get better every day as time goes on. So, um, I, and I, as I said, I humbled every day and of the, all I don't know. And I search every day to learn more so I can be a better leader. Well, and it, it has really, truly been an honor to interview you on the podcast today, Rich. It's, I, I am humbled and honored that you're, that you're willing to spend your, your morning with us today and appreciate all of your wisdom and your knowledge. And just thank you for sharing that with us. Well, thanks. I appreciate being with you and uh, happy to do it anytime uh, as we try and move our nation forward. Absolutely. Well, thank you everyone for attending Hope for Healthcare and 
of course, thank you, Rich, for being here. Um, I want to thank Canyon Ranch as well for supporting you in this role. And thanks to ICD Healthcare Events um, for your sponsorship. All right, tune in and we'll be posting and going live soon. Thank you. You bet. Bye-bye now.